You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. In many ways, uh, Zach's description of the foundation for his relationships with teammates and with his wife is a great lead-in to our brand new message series we're kicking off this weekend entitled Thrive. As we examine the importance of working for the best in all of our relationships. So throughout this series of messages, we're going to be examining lessons that we can learn from actually a very fascinating individual in Scripture who is a great example in many ways, but he also is an example for us because he had some extremely good relationships, and yet he had some really challenging relationships. And so as we work our way through various aspects of relationships, all of our relationships in life, we're going to look at snapshots from this guy who lived about a thousand years before Jesus walked on the earth, a guy named David. So if you have your Bible, you could turn over to uh, Acts 13. We're actually going to look at a New Testament reference uh, describing looking back at David's life. Um, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about his relationships today. Now, this is the same guy who killed the giant. You probably heard about him with a slingshot. He's also the same guy who became the most famous and, uh, I, I believe, the best king of Israel. And to this day, Israel has as their uh, national flag the Star of David. Maybe you never made that connection, but this is the star of David pointing to King David. This is what the Bible records about this second king in Israel's history. In Acts 13, verse 22. After removing Saul, he made, talking about God, he made David their king. God testifies concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. We want to just focus on that slide, that that phrase right there. What does it mean to say that David was a man after God's heart? It certainly doesn't mean that he was perfect. We're going to see that today in a very clear way. It doesn't mean that he had perfect relationships. And yet it does mean that he had a heart that longed for God. And he longed for God to work in his life. He longed to be in a right relationship with God. And he also longed to have right relationships with others. We we see one example, a, a very, very clear example in Scripture of how he expressed his heart for God. Now, David became king uh, following Saul. He went on to conquer Jerusalem, which uh, later became known as the city of David. He established it as the capital of the United Kingdom of Israel. And yet there's this really fascinating uh, scripture in 2 Samuel. So you might want to turn to that or turn to your Bible app in 2 Samuel. 
And, and it's, a, it's a really powerful scene where David is leading this procession into Jerusalem. And, and he's leading this procession of priests, and, and, and they're worshiping and celebrating God. But they're bringing into Jerusalem the Ark of the Covenant. Now, some of you don't know much about the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe all you know about it is there's these movies about Indiana Jones trying to find it, okay? But, but the truth of it is the Ark of the Covenant was this box that, that was really a reminder to Israel of God's presence. There's some cool things inside this box, the box this Ark, uh, one of them, uh, probably the one that probably means the most to us, were the actual stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on it. And so this ark represented to God's people, the Israelites, that God was present, that God was leading them, that God had directed them. And, and it's a, kind of an interesting story. We won't go into all of it, but but it's in this guy's house, okay? It's kind of been kind of in this... Uh, place kind of hidden away. And, and David says, we want God's presence in the city of Jerusalem. So he leads this procession with bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And I love this scene. It shows you the heart of David, how he really was a, a man after God's own heart. And in Second Samuel 6, verse 14, we read this description. David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. Some of your uh, translations of the Bible might say uh, a linen tunic. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and blowing of the ram's horn. I love this scene of seeing David dancing as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem before the Lord. Uh, some of you might be familiar with a song that we, that we used to sing a lot here at Southwest. It was written by David Crowder and performed by his band. It was a song entitled, More Undignified Than This. And it's a song describing this scene. And as I picture this scene in my mind and try to, try to think about it, I... I see an imperfect man, David, and we'll see that play out today. But he truly loved the Lord. And he was willing to express that love in, in a demonstrative way, even if it meant dancing and, and carrying on in a way that some were saying wasn't too dignified as a king might be. You know, I, I think about our times of worship. And I think sometimes some of us kind of hold back and we're maybe too dignified, too concerned about what others around us might think. Do we have that heart of David that we're willing to dance before the Lord? That we're willing to sing out to him and praise to him and, and, and we're not concerned about what we might look like or what people might think about us. We just are just caught up in our worship of God Almighty. You know, we sang that song earlier today about running to your arms. And, and you know, I, I love that thought of, of being a child running to the arms of our Heavenly Father. Some of you might wonder why sometimes in worship people raise their arms. And, and, and I heard a description one time that really grabbed me because I thought, okay, you know, why do people do that? And, 
And it's this idea of being a child, lifting up to God, saying, God, lift me up. I need you. You know, last night I, I preached this message, but it didn't quite go as I wanted to, so I went home and retooled it. And that's, that's one of the advantages of a Saturday night service. You know, on paper sometimes it looks good, but then you get up and go, oh, that bombed, you know. And so this morning when we're singing that song, I'm like, okay, Lord, lift this one up, okay? You're going to have to intervene here. You know, that's, that's why, you know, I, in worship, I, I think sometimes we hold back. I love the heart of David. He didn't care what people thought about him because he was a man after God's heart. Let's be a people that are after God's heart. Let's clap. Let's raise our hands. Let's sing. If you tap your foot, if, if you know, let's cry out, praising God, the God that's worthy of all our worship. Now, that doesn't mean that if we really give ourselves to worship and loving God with all of our heart, that doesn't mean that we're not going to face challenges in life. My goodness, we're still going to face challenges. We're going to face challenges in life. We're going to face challenges in relationships. In this series, we're going to be examining a number of David's relationships. Some of them are uh, are marriages and romantic relationships. Some of them are friendships. Some of them are uh, relationships with family members and and with people that he was uh, really learning from. But we're going to see throughout that that God was at work in David's life. He was at work within an imperfect person. And what we're going to see today is that there were, in some of David's relationships, some real tension. It was really strong tension. And maybe as we go into this series, if you're really honest with yourself, there's some of your relationships that there's some tension going on right now. Maybe for some of you, that tension's been going on for years. And we want to talk about, honestly, how do you address that? How do you deal with that? It might be tension with a family member. It might be tension with somebody at work. It might be tension with a, with a friend at school. It might be tension in your marriage. How do you deal with really difficult, challenging relationships? Let's see a couple of tension points for David. Now, as mentioned earlier, just because... We're excited about our relationship with the Lord and we're passionate about growing in that relationship. That doesn't mean that all of our earthly relationships will just necessarily just immediately fall into place. The truth is that relationships, whether it be a friendship, a family relationship, a dating or marriage relationship, they can be very challenging. And you and I can be committed as Jesus followers, and yet we can still find ourselves having tension in relationship with even other Jesus followers. So let's learn what David learned as he faced some tension points in relationship. So the first tension point is with his first wife. Yes, I said first wife because we'll learn some, David had some marriage issues, but it was a woman named McCall. I used to think it was Michael. It looks like Michael, but I think it's properly pronounced McCall. 
Now let's read about that in verse 16. And actually, it's just after the scene we just talked about where David was dancing before the Lord. But let's see how his wife responded to that. In verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Here we see the tension. Here we see in the midst of his celebration, in the midst of David's very public life, there are problems at home. Now, possibly, typical of guys, I have to admit, David comes home seemingly unaware of the tension that exists between him and his wife. Now, I'm not saying that all men are dense, okay? Now, some of the women might say, want to say amen right now, but uh, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, sometimes somebody can have a really high IQ. They can be really doing well at work or in school, but they might have a low EQ, you know? that emotional quotient. They're not able to really navigate the, 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 the terrain of relationships very well. Maybe David had kind of a low EQ right here because maybe he had been missing some signals that there were some problems at home. And so let's pick up the reading in verse 20. We can see that David seems a little clueless at first. When David returned home to bless his household, McCall, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ooh, that seems kind of like a dig, doesn't it? Rather than your father or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, I'm not sure if that last statement means that the Lord miraculously intervened to prevent McCall from having children or if simply the lack of children is evidence that from this point on, there's simply no intimacy between David and McCall. I I don't know, just food for thought. And possibly this scene is an example of a tension that has driven a wedge between this husband and wife. What caused that tension? What do you think? It could be that McCall was jealous of the attention that David was receiving from these young women in the crowd. Maybe that was it. It could be that McCall was upset with the liberality and generosity that David expressed in his love for God. If you read verses 17 through 19 that we skipped, David is very generous in his sacrifices to the Lord. And in fact, He's also generous with the people of Israel. He gives out many gifts to all the Israelites. Maybe she was a a little concerned about that and how that was going to affect them financially. Or possibly, 
possibly this tension is because of some deep, heartfelt resentment and bitterness that she had toward David. Possibly David is giving us a clue that maybe McCall is bitter that her dad is no longer king or maybe her brothers are, and that instead now David is king. Possibly this tension is, is a result of a, of a kind of a generational thing that's carried on, a dysfunction that's been in the relationship for some time, maybe even going back to her dad, Saul. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at how that David and Saul's relationship uh, later turned toxic. And sometimes we can find ourselves in a relationship that turns toxic. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks and how do you deal with that? And yet, I think here we see that for whatever reason, there's some tension that exists from a dysfunctional relationship. Maybe it's been passed on from generation to generation. Regardless of the source of tension, we see that this marriage between David and McCall is in real trouble. And honestly, in Scripture, we never see these two really be reconciled. Or as two authors uh, in a book that I've been reading said, marriages between two thirsty, passionate souls who are selfish by nature tend to have conflicts and trouble. People are complex. Boy, that's true, isn't it? In fact, in this book, the two authors, uh, and, and in fact, as I started reading this book that I came across, which is entitled Thriving Despite a Difficult Marriage. In this book, the authors point out the the fallacy of, of two extremes. There's one extreme of clinging to this myth of happily ever after. Some of us grew up hearing fairy tales, and, and, and we've kind of embraced this. And, and, and in some ways, that myth exalts marriage or romantic relationships to a status of almost idolatry. I don't believe that was God's design for the marriage relationship, for us to idolize having a perfect marriage. The truth is there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. Now, the other extreme of, of the, the, the happily ever after myth, the other extreme is the noble misery approach. What does that mean? Well, that means somebody that just hangs on with a martyr attitude of, of simply settling to survive in a troubled relationship or marriage. Neither of these approaches are what we're advocating in this message or in this series. We don't want to fall into the myth of thinking this happily ever after and and just, boy, if we could just figure out just a couple things, then we could just all be hunky-dory and, you know, just be like fairy tale. The truth is that's not reality. The other extreme is to not just say, well, I just got to settle for being miserable. There's something in between. And that's what we're going to be seeking to develop throughout this series. Our hope is to inspire you to personally thrive in each and every relationship. Relationships at school or work, 
family relationships, dating relationships, marriage relationships. And even if you find yourself in a difficult relationship, a troubled relationship that's full of tension, as we see between David and McCall, we want to discover in this series ways that you can personally thrive in your relationship with God. And how that you can learn how that through relationships with others, you can learn what it means to lean into God and learn about His love and how to embrace His love and learn how to share it with others in a godly way. In their book, these two authors make this point, which I think is really, really good. Scripture teaches us that marriage is inherently difficult. If we think of a relationship between God and the Hebrew people as a marriage, then we see God coping with a difficult, contentious spouse and a difficult marriage filled with tragedy and heartache. Christ, the bridegroom, was a man who was filled with sorrow and grief, see Isaiah 53, and suffered brutal rejection at the hands of his beloved. The difficulties between Christ and his bride, the church, was so severe that his death was required in order for their relationship to be possible. Christ knew the difficulty of marriage. In Jesus' teaching, we get a real sense of God's design for the marriage relationship. Marriage is a lifetime relationship that's entered into with a vow of faithfulness. And in fact, Jesus says that unfaithfulness is the one reason he described that divorce is an option to end a marriage. Now, you can read more about that in Matthew 19, but I wanted to read to you verses 11 and 12 from Matthew 19. It's not in your message notes, but it's in the Message Bible. The Message Bible's reading of it, I think, is just really powerful and a great, great way to start off this series. And this is what Jesus said. Not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth seemingly never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. I like that. I like that reading. For those of you who are single or single again, I'm, I'm not going to stand up here and say everyone should be married because honestly, Jesus was single and he said that's not the case for everyone. And yet Jesus does paint a beautiful picture of marriage based not on happily ever after myth, instead describing marriage as an opportunity to grow, to learn, to thrive in God's love. And to be enlarged in your understanding of what a relationship with godly, selfless love is all about. Well, I got carried away with the introduction, but this brings us to our second tension point, which illustrates in David's relationship with Bathsheba. Now, you've probably heard of Bathsheba. Let's read about it. It's kind of a lengthy reading, and we're going to skip around a little bit, but 2 Samuel Uh, 11. Let's read this because we'll see some lessons we can learn here. 
In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, if if we're to keep reading, we find out, well, let me go ahead and read just a little bit more and then I'll make a comment. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now, if we keep reading, we find that David does this elaborate cover-up of his sin, of his adultery. And he tries to, to cover it up, and, and he, with being king, he, he puts Uriah, her husband, in harm's way in battle, and he's killed to cover up his sin. It's terrible. We keep reading in verses 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that husband, her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, many of you are at least familiar with this story, and yet, how do you make sense? How do I make sense of this revered king of Israel participating in such atrocious behavior of lust, adultery, murder, and deceit? Let's be honest, this is an example of some of those practices in the Old Testament that people struggle for example, is, is God ordaining war? Is God ordaining multiple wives, murder, and abusive leadership? I think we can answer that question immediately when we see verse 27. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. Yes, David was a man after God's heart, but this episode in his life demonstrates that no one is immune to the temptation of sin. And no one is beyond that which is abhorrent if we don't guard and protect our hearts. Nor should we ever put anyone on a pedestal to worship except Jesus Christ. You see, although I believe with all my heart that the Bible is true and reliable, I don't believe that everything recorded in the Bible is ordained by God. In other words, Scripture tells us the struggles, the sin, and even the corrupt behavior of fallen, flawed human beings. And in the wrestling with these stories, the Lord speaks truth and relevant teaching into our life. Let's briefly mention some things that we can take from this story. The first is it begins to unfold when David isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. You see, this is a time where he should be off leading his troops into battle, but instead he appears to be lazy and he's left the door open for temptation. Secondly, David could have stopped this tragic story at any point along the way. Was it a sin for him to look and lust? Yes. But just because he caved in at that point didn't mean he had to keep going. Sometimes, I think, in our own personal struggles, we cave in in one area, and then we think, well, what, what's the use? And we just keep going down that downward progression. You see, at any place along the 
road, David could have said, stop, what am I doing? Thirdly, as we see with David so often, the cover-up creates a bigger mess. David messed up. Yes, he could have stopped at any point along the way, but he didn't. He, he didn't stop at laziness, lust, adultery, or deceit. It even led to murder to cover up his sin. A final point I want to share with you as I recap this story is I, I found myself, as I read this story, preparing for this message, finding myself really upset with David. You see, I've always honored and appreciated David, but this story, as I read it again in the midst of everything going on in our culture, as I think about the Me Too movement, as I think about some of the news, and by the way, I've shared a couple weeks ago, you know, I, I get tired of watching the news. Maybe some of you can relate to it. It just it seems like all this stuff is being uncovered with this doctor in Michigan taking advantage of these young, innocent gymnasts who their voices were silenced. And this time as I read the story, I found myself being angry at David. Here's this powerful king who took advantage of this of his power and his authority to pressure Bathsheba into a sexual relationship, which resulted in her losing so much, her dignity, her husband, and eventually her child. It was terrible for David to do what he did, to take advantage of this woman and then to try to cover it up and silence her. It's wrong. It was dead wrong. He gets called out. We won't have time to read it, but you can keep reading in the notes, in in the message notes. He gets called out by a prophet named Nathan for his sin. You know, and as I thought about that and wrestled with it, I came across an article written by Beth Moore, and and I know you ladies are going to be thrilled that I'm going to quote Beth Moore today, but it's an article entitled, Sorting Through the Church's Silence. She does a wonderful job drawing a distinction between sexual sin, which, if we're all honest, all of us have, maybe there's two or three who haven't, but most of us have probably struggled or fallen into sexual sin in the past at least, or maybe some of us still in the present are struggling with it. But there's a difference between that, which is not to be winked at, that's not my point, and sexual crime which cannot be tolerated in any way. And it must be exposed and called out every time. In her article, she describes a pastor in California, a guy named Rick Warren, who just recently, just last weekend, stood up in his stage in his church, a large church, and he called out, addressed with his wife the topic of sexual abuse and assault. Kay, his wife, courageously, shamelessly told her her personal story and shared the ramifications of abuse in her life and the road to healing for her. And Rick preached on themes from Scripture. Beth Moore concluded her article by saying, I will long remember Rick's address to his congregation. After nearly weeping with compassion over the hurt Many had suffered and saying the simple but fitting words, I'm so sorry that happened to you. 
And I just want to say from the statistics, I know there's people in this crowd who've suffered at the hands of sexual abuse. And I just want to say from my heart that I'm deeply sorry that you've suffered in that way. I'm sorry that somebody took advantage of you. That was wrong. And I want you to want to point you to God who can heal you. I want to point you to a God who loves you and can bind up those wounds and bring healing and hope to your life so you can thrive in a relationship with God and, yes, even with others. I also like what Rick Warren said Last week when he said, God has made me shepherd over this flock. I will do everything I can to make Saddleback Church a safe place for the sheep. But it will not be a safe place for wolves. If you are a predator and you prey on my flock, I will hunt you down and I will turn you in. And I say, amen, Rick Warren. We want Southwest to be a safe place. That's why we have... That's why we have some built-in safety issues for our children to protect them. And that's why we do background checks on every person that works with children or teens. We're committed to that. And we refuse to wink at anything that's inappropriate or abuse. And I want you to know I'm committed to that. And yet as we wrap up, back to our topic of relationships... We don't want you to fall into a myth of happily ever after, but we don't want you to fall into this idea of just miserably settling for difficult relationships. Throughout this series, we want to put a third option before you of how you can thrive despite maybe past difficult relationships and even maybe present ones. As we close out our introduction to this subject matter, I want to share with you some really important principles quickly to cling to, to hopefully give you hope that you can thrive despite problems in the past or even tension in the present. Here's some points to think about. Marriage, healthy relationships mean partnering with God, reaching out to God. Marriage, healthy relationships are bigger than you. They're bigger than me. We have to invite God into the relationship. And marriage, healthy relationship requires honesty. And at the root of it, it's the battle is in our hearts. Now, here's the good news. Although David messed up royally, and I find myself being mad at him, the difference between David and a serial abuser is he came to his senses, he repented of his sin, and he found forgiveness. David was willing to get honest with God. He was willing to enter the battle of the heart. Yes, he faced the consequences of his sin, but he went on to thrive as a man and as a leader. Every weekend here at Southwest, we have communion. And during this time of communion, it's a time for us to truly invite God into our hearts, into our lives, into our relationships, and ask him and invite him to bring that healing. Ask him to, to bring about strength 
so that we can face those challenges in our life. I want to urge you during this time of communion, allow your heart to enter that arena. Lay your heart before the Lord. Bring your hurts. Bring your aches. Bring your tensions. And let's look to the one that can bring healing and forgiveness into our life, Jesus, the one who died so that we could be forgiven, the one who suffered so that we could find peace. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for just the hope we can have, even in the midst of heartache because of what Jesus has done for us. People, even heroes in the Bible, will disappoint us. But we thank you, Lord, that Jesus came and brings hope, brings healing, brings forgiveness. Let us look to him at this time. It's in his name that we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.